Well, what we can do is we can go back and forth. So we could do like, uh, you know, every other week, we could switch between the, the more casual and more formal conversations and see which we prefer, maybe. Yeah, I love that. I'm not I'm not too worried at all. Um, so just so you know our voices, I'm Crispy Chicken. I'm Suspended Reason. And today we're going to talk about what relationships basically, right? Because they're interesting because basically the dynamics in them evolve mostly to facilitate the other person. You know, there's not as much kind of a lot of different people pushing at standards that they make sense for a, a whole group. It's just two people. And I, I think Suspended, you're the one who suggested it. So I'll let you cook kick it off if you want to uh yeah i i mean i was kind of trying to think about a bridge from last week um but but still getting into new ground uh last week we talked a lot about strategic interaction and you know i feel like uh especially when you're thinking of examples or reading about examples in the literature um a lot of the encounters are between people who um, have a lot of conflict of interests. They're not super aligned. Um, they don't know each other especially well. So they're making like a lot of inferences or abduction based on, you know, little metonyms about how somebody is dressing or, or somebody's attitude, you know, based on how they come off. And, um, and also most of those games, you know, sometimes they're iterated, um, sometimes they're prolonged, but very few games have as many rounds or as many iterations as long-term, you know, monogamous relationships do. So it doesn't have to necessarily be monogamous. You know, we could go kind of more abstract and just think about strategic, like long-term alliances. And you can start thinking about political alliances, or we can get really concrete and just think about kind of one specific example, like monogamous coupledom, which I think we're both in. Um, I'm down yeah, for either way. We should state our credentials, by the way. I think, you know, I, I'm a I'm a male heterosexual in a long-term relationship. I guess it's been like three and a half years and I, I live with my partner. Um, yeah, something like that. The similar numbers, similar situations. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, I think we might as well start from what we know. I, and I feel like that's actually, by the way, a principle I'm probably going to hammer in all the time that like, it's worth like we want things to generalize of course we do but like i do think it makes more sense to kind of like like anthropologically right to study what you know and of course you know you have to you have to be careful about how you're biased about these things and how, what you think of them but at the same time i think it's you know ridiculous to try to to try to study things out of what you know until you know them so i think we should just start with monogamous relationships i mean i i definitely have a few thoughts but do you have any any initial observations you want to start with um you know, not not especially. Um, I mean, a couple a couple of the things that that I was thinking about um, just to maybe set us up is, um, you know, this idea that like communication is manipulation. I still believe that, but it it looks different than you would expect, or that kind of manipulativeness is more hidden and less intuitive. I think uh, in these settings, so we could talk a little about how we think manipulation kind of plays out. Um, and what like kind of mutually advantageous manipulation looks like. Um, or we could talk about, I was thinking about, you know, uh, recently I've been thinking a lot about different ethno methods, um, just as kind of like patterns and strategies and, and kind of like rituals that people fall into that work. And once they seem to start working, then they can be kind of reliably brought up again. And, um, and people start developing habits and norms and routines. So uh, I don't know. I think, those are possible. I think both of those are worth 
Yeah, I think both of those are worth talking about. Let's start with the first one, uh, because, I mean, I think there's there's a lot there. Um, yeah, go for it. Um, all right. Well, I guess I can give a couple examples here of things that um, are clearly manipulation, but yet we don't, we wouldn't, you know, actually, the kind of connotation that comes with that, which is kind of sleazy and selfish, um, we wouldn't apply there. So uh, if, you know, we're in a house together and I, I call somebody's name, I'm getting their attention. Um, and I'm doing the, I'm, I'm communicating the thing. I'm making the vocal utterance in order to manipulate my environment in some way, in order to get a reaction, to get somebody to do something. What I'm doing is trying to get their attention, um, which is very innocuous and a super, super simple kind of form of signal or communication. But that's one example. I don't know if you want to talk about that or we could, I could throw some others out. No, I think that's totally worth talking about. And I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot that goes in there, even though it seems super simple. So one thing I'll point out is that I have never been in a relationship where the level of attentiveness to this kind of signal is equal between me and my partner. So there's always an imbalance and it's and honestly that actually can shift over a relationship quite um intensely. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things there that is interesting is you need something from your partner usually when you you know calling out their name. You want something from them. You want to talk to them about something. You need them to do something, something. Um, uh, or maybe you're checking in on them. There's a lot of different things. I think though one of the things that ends up happening because it's such an iterated game is you're also managing their attention to your to to how you perceive the capacity of their attention. So mm -hmm. for instance, like if you know that like they kind of don't have that much attention to like give to those, those kinds of times, then actually a lot of the time, rather than being less likely to call out, you're more likely to call out because you need to kind of manage like actually the relationship and how it's happening because you're like, well, these things need to be done. And I know they're kind of going to get sucked into something and they don't actually have that much attention. So I have to be the one managing their attention. And I see this with so many relationships, like my parents' relationship, where for certain domains, one of them will be like the person who manages the situation. And they'll always be the one kind of being like, oh, come over here, you have to do this thing. And like kind of actually managing the situation, even if they're not the only one involved. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, can you give an example of that other than, you know, calling to get somebody's attention? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I think, for instance, um, honestly, in most of couples I have this information for, I think like one person kind of tends to manage the taxes once they're like economically, mm. you know, a joint unit. Mm. And the other person is like an informational source because they have, you know, you need to get your W2 from your workplace and stuff like that. But the reality is that like that other person is basically operating as an API and, and one person right. is the central fed that, that's managing the situation. Right. Okay. Okay. So the superset we're dealing with here is, is specialization of abilities. Do you think it's fair to say, or is there a different dimension that I should include? No, in I, th I think that's true though. I think it has relatively little to do with skill a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And I'll, and I think that's like something, a difference that like a lot of the time, right? Like, you know, Adam Smith's entire idea about specialization is often like, well, you can get really good at this thing. And I think there is some of that. Um, like, you know, like, I don't know, for instance, like my mom was more of a homemaker and she's just better at a lot of things and more efficient than my dad is at those things, even though he does them sometimes. And, you know, she would travel and we, we would do that and that would be fine. But I think more than skill, often it's um, playing to a rhythm of life. 
like a lot of the time it's you know like the person who gets f- home first will, will end up being the mm. person who cooks because that just makes right. sense and that's like kind of an arbitrary thing and some skill develops there but often it's not even that big of a difference of scale even three years later it's a matter of actually managing a highly contextual situation and what's practical right right it seems like another kind of contributor here is who cares more about excelling versus being mediocre at a given domain so right. you know you this could do huge. right yeah you could just do a sufficient job with like an 80 20 rule on the dishes or on um, keeping the house clean or on whatever it might be um, car maintenance um, but people who care more about it um, there's obvious reasons why they would and should take the lead um, and they end up yeah essentially taking responsibility for it um, right i mean and full disclosure oh, sorry, mm-hmm. go ahead. No, no, no. Go for it. I was just going to say, I, I definitely just tend to care a lot about things. And I have a, in my opinion, kind of a toxic trait that like if someone else cares a lot about it, it becomes important for me to figure out a way for it to be done to their level, which, you know, that sounds charitable, like when I say it that way, but I really don't think it is charitable in many ways, because it becomes a thing that needs to be solved in a way that I have trouble letting go of. Um, and that becomes that becomes another thing to manage, right? They, this mm-hmm. other person's emotional investment in you achieving that, um, and so I think there is this secondary layer of making things like bringing things up to standard of a, of a given person, but then the other person's investment in that in in the first person actually achieving their standard is another kind of layer that like I think most long term relationships have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it seems like. If I'm trying to think what separates this game from other interpersonal games, um, and by this game I just mean the monogamy game, um, uh, it, I mean, one, it's like a, a more forgiving, very iterated tit for tat. Um, so there's a lot more kind of lenience um, for kind of short term uh, defection, or. But then also it seems like. Um, there's this kind of, uh, I mean, I guess the reason why uh, I think of a specialization metaphor is just because it seems like um, the underlying logic is, you know, if if this is a big deal for you and a small deal for me, then I'll do it. And if it's uh, a big deal for me and a small deal for you, you know, I kind of expect you'll do it. And if both of us behave this way, then we both, you know, there's a, a clear kind of positive sum. Uh a return there. Um. I think that's 100% true. And I think that should be the standard model. But I think in many relationships, I know, if not all of them, there's an additional element of it's a big deal that you do this thing for me. Mm. And I think that's one of the reasons why relationships are very complicated games. Mm. What, what, what does a big deal mean? What is, why does that change the dynamic? Oh, so what I'm thinking rather that like, it's a big deal, but the problem is it's an action that can't be done necessarily by either party. So for instance, a lot of the relationships that I hear about that end in marriage is because one of the partners cared way more and that's a single Mm. run thing. So it's usually not actually a huge deal, but things that need to be done consistently that are a big, that are a big thing for one partner, but it has to be the other partner who does it 
often end up being points of contention and points that need to be worked out like mm-hmm. consistently throughout a relationship. So I think one thing I see often, especially like um, growing up in my friend groups, people had things where, um, you know, the mother in a relationship would would feel that the father isn't spending enough time with the child. And that would just always be a point of contention of like, you know, you should take them out on Saturday. You should like actually have like a real relationship with your kid, blah, blah, blah. Because a lot of the um, people I grew up around had a stay-at-home mother who used to have a career and then eventually it was kind of a pain to do that and raise a kid at the same time. And the father was kind of like a businessman of some sort. And then that's kind of how the relationship ran. And the father was often traveling and whatever. And so mm-hmm. they kind of felt a little bit alienated from the child, would kind of do some token and stuff. And like the mother would consistently feel like, oh no, this like this isn't like how it should be. And you know, I think that's not even wrong. I think the reality is most of my friends, I, I kind of did a informal poll um at the end of high school just don't know that much about their dads like like they kind of know the basic deals they know more than i did um but they didn't have like a real kind of repartee um and so i think like these things that are really important to one person but require the other person to do most of the work to make an action happen um Mm. are actually in many ways like become the main games of a relationship because they're how people show Mm. more than they care Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Now, now I, I totally understand what you're saying. Um, hmm. Yeah. I mean, that seems right. I mean, that seems like, um, yeah, I mean, I guess one way to say that is that it's a big deal to one party and the other party that maybe it's a smaller deal to should, uh, should put the work in and carry their weight. On the other hand, um, it's probably also true that it's, both a big deal for the party who wants it and a big deal in terms of a big sacrifice for the party that uh, is is or isn't willing to give it. And that's kind of the problem. Like if it was a really small deal, like I just want you to bring flowers on Saturdays, um, you know, that that's not, uh, that's a small sacrifice. If that's like a make or break in a relationship, that's not, not a big thing to, but um, yeah, I, that, no, that all makes sense to me. Have you heard of like, I think it's called bombs cost disease, um, this idea in economics, right, that uh, basically, you know, things that don't, so like, for instance, like software is, is has gotten much more productive in the last couple of decades, right? It's easier to make software that does more and more quickly, and it requires less human labor. Now, like, making songs is maybe a little bit more productive, but like, not significantly more in the last 10 years, let's say. Um, but we still want people to write songs. Um and so, like, basically, these jobs get bid up. And, of course, it's more complicated than that. And there are a lot of people who want to be rock stars, which kind of confounds this issue. But, you know, uh, putting all of that aside, it's true that things that don't get more productive still end up getting more pay if we still want them as a society. And people are willing to continue mm-hmm. to pay more mm-hmm. for them, even if they're not producing more. And I think there's a similar thing here, but it, it's kind of more complicated in many ways because... I think what happens is even if there's a little thing, like I think the um, bling, bring flowers on ugh, bring flowers on Saturday thing is a great point there, is that if that happens and if it's not a big deal to the person, I think often the real end goal of a desire for the other person to do something is a certain level of emotional weight for the other person. And if it carries little emotional weight, then I think basically the task itself will be made harder in order to create that emotional weight. So it'll be like, you bring me the same flowers every Saturday. Why don't you actually think mm. about, you know, which flowers you're bringing? And if 
it's just random flowers or if it's the cheapest flowers, right? There begins to be this feeling of, well, sure, you brought different flowers, but yeah, it's not enough. I think this is a little different, though. I mean, I think this dynamic is real, and but I think what, what blurs together is two different situations. One in which there's an intrinsic desire for something that the other party is unique. It's e- uniquely easy or whatever for them to make that happen. Um, and then there's the situation in which uh, what you actually want is for their, them to prove their desire and affection and love and loyalty or whatever it might be. And so at that point, anything that's easy is beyond the point. It's actually part of the point is asked to be kind of hard or take, take a sacrifice. And I feel like those are different, even though they can play out in similar situations. I agree with that carving up, but I want to point out how these are often part of the same game inherently. Because I think, so let's say um, just one of the partners has a lot more desires for the way things should be. And I've seen a lot of relationships like that. Mm -hmm. I think one thing that happens a lot is that partner ends up feeling like, don't I do everything around here? And that ends up being the crux of the situation, even though, you know, for a while there was kind of the stability of like, they were figuring out everything that they thought needed to happen a certain way. And the other person was figuring out the other what, what they needed to do. But, you know, person one and person two weren't doing equal amounts of labor, and that became the crux of the situation. So while I agree with you that, like, at the surface level, these things are different, I think they're generally driven by a desire for intrinsically what the relationship should look like, and that ends up creating the situation that the the smaller kind of uh, conflicts get resolved in. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, I feel like we've we've gotten out of the concrete and into big abstract stuff that I get a little uncomfortable talking about. Uh, Fair enough. I, uh, I don't, I, I mean, to be honest, I, I'm not great with, or don't think a lot about, um, the kind of big picture psychology of different people's relationships, but I feel like I can talk a little bit about maybe really, small embodied moments of, of interaction. Um, so maybe we can keep kind of doing this thing where we'll start on something small and I'll throw out like a very small transaction and then we can kind of talk about more increasingly abstract ramifications. Let's do it. What's our next, right. what's our next concrete thing? Um, all right. I want to talk about what I'm going to call the list and choose ethno method. And this Ooh. I think is a common coordination strategy. Um, we can also call it you show, I choose. Um, and I think basically one party lists a set of options so that you're trying to basically plan or coordinate plans. One party lays out a list of options that's acceptable to them, and then the other party chooses. And there's obviously a lot of variance on this. One party can request the other person's list and then select from it to match you know, something that is mutually amenable um, or somebody can offer. Um, and I think this happens you know, all the time. It happens with picking I meals yeah right yeah right it's probably one of the most i mean it happens even outside of relationships right it's when we were trying to discuss how uh, what to talk about today we played list and choose <laughs> true yeah um and if somebody can't choose from the list they have to make some counter proposals that's the them's the rules yeah you can't just say no to everything on the list and just throw your hands up you gotta <laughs> well and, and first of all people do do that right and a i think that is like something that happens out of actual, you know, inconvenience, but I, but something that also happens as a method of pushing power. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, again, I'm going to 
and I don't think you said this, but I think there's a natural reaction to this, which is like, oh, you know, screw that person. Like, why are they doing that? I think that kind of expression of power is super normal. And actually, like, that happens all the time. And I, I do want to fight this idea that, like, these relationships shouldn't have power dynamics. But um, that's just a side note. To the, I think that what's interesting about the, oh, what if I reject everything? And what, what's interesting about this game is it naturally just flips over, right? Now the person who was selecting has to be the proposal method, and the other person is going to accept one of them. Mm-hmm. And I think it's that ability to recursively just go one layer deeper that makes it a very flexible game in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm trying to think what are, what some other situations that this plays out. Um where to eat is like the biggest <laughs> one. I mean, if mm-hmm. I don't think there's anyone I've ever heard who hasn't had this experience with friends, you know, or or a lover right. or whatever. Like right. it, it's right. just I've it's so common. Um right, and I mean like well, another interesting dimension that we can talk about and this would kind of fork us off, but uh in kind of these debates about where to eat oftentimes people don't want to choose because they don't want the responsibility. And there's this interesting situation where um, there are both pros and cons to making the call of your preference. And it's, I think a lot of naive game theory like looks at things and just says, well, people want their preferences and uh, they just have their object level preferences, which is for this dinner place or this dinner place. But um, if they're, unless their preferences are especially strong, oftentimes they'll just want to avoid um taking responsibility for the decision, if it goes badly, if it's a bad place to eat, if whatever it is, or they don't want to. It's it's also possible that we could frame this, that people feel like they have judgment call like credits. And if they make so many judgment calls in a relationship, they feel like they're domineering or they're making other calls, it's lopsided. And so they kind of strategically deploy these judgment calls, uh, credits, when they actually have strong preferences and really feel strongly one way or the other. I'm I'm eliciting some some nice abstract theory from you. This is great. Um, I totally agree. And I, by the way, this is a this is like definitely a thing that happens in my current relationship that um, I have to make the list. And even upon making the list, and even if it's a short list, and I'm like I'm okay with everything, my partner is like, "But what if you're disappointed by it?" And I swear, mm-hmm. I at least I probably never, but like at least very very rarely have I ever been like not even why did you do this, but oh, this was bad and it, it sucked. Like, I just don't even care that much. Um, but I think one of the things that's interesting, and I think this happens in a lot of relationships, is um, my partner does care and my partner does judge the restaurant. And if she had a bad time, I think she kind of has this feeling that I did or that it could have just been a better time in all. Mm-hmm. And maybe her having a bad time made it bad for both of us, which is kind of true because I do feel bad, um, you know, when she doesn't like what we eat. And I do think a lot about like, oh, well, you know, she's kind of picky about a lot of these foods and things like that. Um, and we don't, we both don't like the restaurants around us that much. Um, so I think what's interesting is that basically, you know, a partner's perception of self generally kind of seeps into the other person. And it makes for, you know, what, you know, I think the classic view would be irrational decision making where you're not really optimizing for anything that would make anybody exactly happy, but your kind of model that you're using to vaguely make these optimization parameters, like optimizes for this thing, because you're like, well, I'll be unhappy. And that just means it was an unhappy meal in some sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you give another example of that beyond, beyond the meal where, um, I guess specifically yeah, so I the think- kind of features that you added on there at the end? I'm interested 
Oh yeah. So I think buying stuff, you know, if you're going to make a big purchase and I think often, you know, two people are differently sensitive to, um, like cost of things or money or like whatever, even if they're sharing, even if they have, you know, the same bank account, I still think people are differently sensitive. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think the level of disappointment versus gain is different for those two people. Mm -hmm. And I think generally like people that I see making this decision operate where they kind of average out the, you know, the gains and the losses between the people, but their, their average is weighted and it's closer to their own view of the situation because they can't really factor out how their disappointment is going to make the entire situation mm. seem grim in a way. Right, right. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I think that is such a, such a huge part of the dynamic is that when you have two people whose happiness is both tied up in their perception of the other person's happiness, um, then... Uh, there's these weird feedback loops you can get into where by thinking things are bad and publicly reacting in a way they get worse. And which of course uh, makes your, I don't know, there's, there's, there's some kind of sinkholes you can get stuck in. It seems like. Uh, And I'm, I'm totally ignorant, but I want to make a point about non-monogamy about polyamory. mm -hmm, I don't know mm -hmm. any polygamy, but polyamory, I know a little bit about. Um, And what I wonder there is if basically it's kind of like a firing squad that like if there are enough people, responsibility becomes more diluted. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. And honestly, I would be curious to have someone probably on here and yeah. hear like if they if they're on a you know a long term relationship or or at least if their long term situation is being probably with people in cycling, um, totally. Then what the deal is? Yeah, totally. I mean, even just it would be interesting. Uh, people probably have people who do this for long stretches of time and lots of different configurations or with partners probably have a decent sense of what kind of setups are stable and what kind of numbers or personalities combined with numbers lead to like you might need people who have a lot of kind of slack or very easygoing the higher numbers you get for instance um, I believe that. the other thing i want to say is that yeah I, I mean i wonder if uh thinking about your comments about you know the the ruined dinner earlier or it could have been better i wonder how much of how much there's a meaningful connection between how slack and easygoing somebody is versus let's say like picky and 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 then on the other hand um how strongly they feel regrets it seems like there's a clear way in which if the punishment for the wrong decision is greater i you feel more regret it lingers longer and messes up your day more um obviously there's going to be a lot more deterrence towards making the wrong decision and making decisions in general Agreed. So I kind of think that this is mostly on a single axis. Um, and like, it's basically a spring constant where like, all of the behavior is created that like, if you, you know, stretch out the spring more, if, if the mechanism is more tightly wound, then the whiplash is higher. Um, and that can like lead to like very strong decisions in the right direction. But if it hits you, it, it hits harder. Um, and, and my perception is this is mostly on a single axis and, and the, the bundle is pr- pretty stable. Hmm. Um, let's see. Should we, um, okay. We could do a, we could do another kind of ethno method. I'm trying to think if I have any written down my notes here. Um, if you want to go to your second subject, I think you should just go for it. What's the second yeah. subject again? What was I'm that? trying to remember. It was good. <laughs> <laughs> it might've just been ethno method stuff. I also, um, 
Oh, you're right. Let's... No, it was ethnomethods that was, we ended up yeah. kind of mixing everything together. Well, that's good. Yeah, you know, we could talk about. I know you're not a big fan of this book, and I get that. I also think this book it. is is I... trying to talk about something that we don't have good language for yet. So even though it is incoherent and self-contradictory at points, I think it's trying to point at something important. And that is James Carse's Finite and Infinite Games. Oh, let's do it. So I have to I have to put my credentials down here, which is I actually have been meaning to reread it, but I read it when I was like eight or nine. Like it's been oh, more than I a see. decade. Um, wow. But honestly, I'm curious... Um, like, I'd be curious if you want to just lay down what you think, and then I'll respond to that, and just, you know, my ignorance can be okay, but I, I want to come back to it, and I think, why not? Let's If, you, if you're comfortable with that, let's just throw it out. Mm-hmm. Well, so, huh, let's see. I think there are two game frames that I think are sort of pointing at similar things using different language, and they kind of specify their terms differently, but they're kind of linked in my head. And so one is this essay by a guy named, uh, gosh, Sam, Sam something. It starts with a B for Ribbon Farm. Sam Bogwat, maybe. Uh, And it's called uh, Playing Games to Leave Games. And the idea is that uh, a lot of life can be modeled as uh, what playing games to leave games. There are these kind of long stretches of preparation and skill building that are followed by very short packed high pressure tests um and those tests uh have major ramifications for the rest of your life and that's the reason you're you know you've been preparing so much and that part of the reason that you play these games is so that you can get into situations in which you no longer have to play your game so to some extent you've either proven yourself (laughs) like you've gained a title or you've gained a credential um you've passed some tests and now you can uh, do the real thing instead of playing the game. Um, and so I like that. I also, so then I'll, now I'll read you um, a couple lines from, from my notes on, on the cars. I unfortunately don't have a book on me, so I only have what notes uh, I saved before I gave back my loan copy. And he says, um, finite players play within boundaries. Infinite players play with boundaries. And he talks a lot in this book about kind of culture as an infinite game. So um, there's kind of this like Keith Johnstone impro thing in his mind, at least as I read him, where it's about kind of keeping the ball in the air and generating new possibilities, um, subverting um, expectations, breaking boundaries. Um, And finite games, meanwhile, finite players always play for power. Uh, quote, it is the desire of all finite players to be master players, to be so perfectly skilled in their play that nothing can surprise them, so perfectly trained that every move in the game is foreseen at the beginning. Death and life is a mode of existence in which one has ceased all play. There is no further striving for titles. Um, so, you know, it's very Nietzschean, it's very aphoristic, and sometimes I feel like I don't love his carving between finite and infinite play but I do feel like there's something, some kind of frame that I want to use to talk about the meaningful difference between the kind of power struggles that we see out like in the polis, in the public um, sphere, and then the kind of, um, uh, in theory, more cooperative and generative at their best um, relationships that maybe you see more in domestic spheres or in long-term friendships um, or... uh, so I don't know. Maybe maybe that's that'll give us a little bit of a start. 
it, no, it totally does. And and honestly, this this is what I do believe about finite and infinite games. Um, I like this like with boundaries and within boundaries. Like, I do agree. And and I think this you know playing to leave thing is is basically describes most of how that happens in my life. I do agree that this infinite game deal is that oh well this game it has a purpose within some kind of set of parameters um but as i try you know as i get what i want out of it my view of the world changes and things happen mm. and i want it's basically a launch pad everything is a launch pad and i guess that's kind mm. of how i view just the narrativation of life right that like mm. literally there is nothing you can do except take literally where you are now and go where you're going um and since you don't know enough about anything, that inevitably is a kind of infinite game because you, like, even if it is actually finite at the end of the day, the edges are so cloudy. You have to play it like an infinite game. You have to extrapolate to the entire space as if you're on an infinite plane. Um, and I think that causes this leave behavior because you're springboarding into whatever you think is the next interesting thing. And when you're there, you're spending your time kind of unveiling what you think is meaningful about the next place you're mm -hmm. planning to um to springboard to what do you think no i mean I, I think that's right i mean i think this is why there's an old kind of joke about the you know 20 something liberal arts school graduate who sits around waiting to find out what they want to do with their life um that's just it's not how it works you you get in something and and you get up to your your knees you know in mud and uh and you start figuring out from there um, what stuff is more interesting or less interesting or what stuff you find more or less rewarding. Um, and there's no other way than, than trial and error interaction with the environment. So I'm with you. Absolutely. And I think there's another thing that I've only come to feel recently, which is that I, so I purposely tried to not make any definite decisions about what I was going to do with my life. Um, and I didn't let that completely stop me. You know, I'm, uh, in grad school and I like am specializing in a certain direction and maybe I won't do that forever but I think I did basically try to always be oblique about what I was doing and not let it contain all the things that I cared about but I think one of the weird things is in order to really make an interesting contribution I feel like you basically have to find the place in which you're really frustrated by how things are happening um, and then want to figure out some way to redirect the flow and basically any other situation, you're essentially riding the waves of history, which is not a bad thing to be doing, but I think it's hard to find meaning out of that. And I think, you know, in, in reality, infinite game players are mostly interested in seeing if they can kind of rearrange the flow to fit an aesthetic sensibility that has been created by their experience in the first place. Um, and I feel like that's very difficult to do without a kind of blindness, without a kind of investment that creates a sense of locality and that the, and within which those boundaries become necessary hmm. so i think it's exactly it right that you want to play um you want to play with boundaries because if you don't play with boundaries your entire aesthetic sensibility falls apart hmm. yeah that's cool um hmm yeah, I mean, I think um, setting up kind of provisional boundaries within infinite games is interesting. I mean, I wish I read uh, Cars a couple of years ago. Um, our our friend from the server, Ragged, owned it to me, actually. Um, so it's been a while. 
We could talk a little bit about, I mean, you kind of know my feelings on this already, but I am, I don't feel like I have strong reasons for believing this. It's just my bias. But whether uh, talking about uh, interpersonal relationships in economic or transactional terms, a little like we've been doing, um, be it in terms of scripts or in terms of payoffs, uh, is corrupting or damaging in some way. I also would be interested, I mean, we could kind of talk in general about the metagame or like, I mean, I'm still thinking about uh, Amir's, I don't, what's his name? Is it Amir Asamir? I don't. Oh, uh, <laughs> it's, it's Amir and uh, Amir. Amirism okay. is, his, Amirism. is his handle. Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a weird thing about Twitter is that you have the handle and the name. Uh, uh, I don't know. It I always think it's meant to me. be kind of temporary, right? Like, you know, yeah. call him whatever. Maybe, maybe the reference will eventually dangle and that's good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's cool. It, the only other network I can or platform I can think of that has it is Discord, right? Like you can change your name going into servers. Uh but uh anyways. Uh so we could talk a little bit about like the kinds of conversations that we're having now would be weirder or possibly open up problems if held within the actual relationships between the players. And I don't think that's necessary, but I think it's possible. And uh, I'm interested in maybe we could chat about why we think the metagame um, or talking about these rules, making them explicit, um, changes the dynamics. I think this is super interesting. I think we should talk about it now. And I'll even propose that this this is a ma- major topic we talk about on the next podcast, or at least on a future podcast. But to begin, I'll say that I totally agree and definitely one of the biggest challenges I've faced, I guess kind of, you know, even though I never really considered me myself a rationalist, this might be the most rationalist thing about me, is <laughs> I had a lot of trouble in relationships because I would try to talk about the metagame and people would get offended. <laughs> and I felt very trapped because I couldn't. I, it's possible that I, like, I, I could control myself and not do it, but I would feel very lonely with that information. And so I think, you know, one of the things one of the reasons why I even, you know, am interested in the things I am is because from a really young age, I was just interested in this stuff and I would say it out loud and it was weird. Um, and it wasn't just weird, as, as Amir said, it, it changes the actual game you're playing with the person as you play it. And I think one of the um, major reasons that this is true is something that we've been kind of discussing um, in messages that like, essentially enough ambiguity can give mutual foundations because whatever it is that both of you believe in your hearts is come out somehow like coalescing into a relatively clear singular interest. Um, And as long as that interest keeps the stability of the object you care about, then that's good. And actually making it clear the ways in which it's not compatible um, makes people try to solve that incompatibility like a problem. When in reality, maybe that incompatibility was a load-bearing part of the system that created ne- negative feedback that didn't like destabilize a relationship. So for instance, like mm-hmm. there are cases, right, when like you don't want to just align everything perfectly towards um, making a single thing happen because you get a positive feedback loop where things get way too intense. So like I had a relationship when I was really young where things got way too intense, way too quickly. And then that ended up being something that just like, it was, it was an entire kerfuffle, basically. And like, 
it just we kind of had to step back and try to see what could make, we could make things work. Um, but if there had been more negative feedback, more unsureness about, oh, well, I don't know what the future looks uh -huh. like here and whatever, then that actually would have been a kind of buffer, even though our incentives were aligned by the explicitness of, you know, having a mutual interest in a very long term relationship and all the ways in which that could work out. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I hadn't really been thinking about, especially in the early stages, um, because, but yeah, that is true that that a lot of those I mean, it, it reminds me a little bit of what um, Chris Beiser has been talking about with respect to like these kind of multivocal utterances, which I still really don't like as a handle. But this idea that there's strategic gaps that you leave in the information that you convey or that certain gaps, um, you can coordinate around gaps. Um, and uh, you're not going to perfectly be on the same page about everything, but um if you bring to the fore the things that you are on the same page about, you can kind of tuck away other things. Um, maybe in the long term, that's not not the best strategy I'd have to think about. But I also think there's just a lot of truth to this thing that it's kind of, you know, conventional wisdom. And my mom would always tell it to me, which is, it's good to keep a little bit of mystery. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't mm -hmm. think that's just random. I think there are a few reasons. And I think the biggest one is you want to make sure someone doesn't box you in as a decided quantity because you really mm -hmm. aren't yeah and people can box you into that and they'll start being more and more wrong because they won't update their priors because they think right. they can explain your system with the observations they've already seen totally i mean i think this is why i like so much the kind of keeping up wind or intrinsic empowerment frame of like keeping options open and the stuff that you've said in the past about why uh, certain ways in which we're strategic with utterances in terms of being very careful about not to commit ourselves to things um, because we will be held accountable um, for, for utterances later down the road. Um, I think it's beginning to be time to wrap up, but one yeah. thing that I'll add to that is, um, and I hope we explore this more soon, I think there's this notion of commitment. So I think we generally talk about commitment as in, oh, I'm going to commit to this thing or this identity. And I think actually a lot of commitment is more like, oh, in this person's mind, I'm going to be modeled like this. And even that commitment, even though it's not being made, you can, you, there are certain patterns by which you expect people to predict your future actions. And in some ways, that's the most dangerous thing. And I think one of the reasons why the idea of normality exists is because if you act normal, then people have a certain basic idea of how you're going to act, but they also have a certain level of unsureness because there's an assumption that mm -hmm. no one is just normal. People have mm -hmm. specific things, but they're not showing them to you. And so if you mm -hmm. exist within the small band of normal, there's an assumption that you're hiding someone something in a normal way that allows you to have space. Whereas if you act eccentric in a certain way, then you actually have less space than a normal person because it's assumed that that's who you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, w I feel like, and people do do this, I feel like, where when they feel like they're starting to get boxed in, they will uh, actively push back against others, either expectations of them or others' kind of judgments about them in terms of, you know, you don't know what I like, uh, you, you know. <laughs> um, 
Mm. No, absolutely. And I think what's interesting is that that rarely works, right? That like an explicit calling out of that framework doesn't actually cause people to update their priors, except on the levels of aggression. Oh, all right. Well, I don't have a ton more to talk about, so maybe this is the end. Um, this is the end. Thank right. you. Um, oh, wait, we're going to do We're going to do our weird thing. Okay. Okay. Now 10 seconds where we think of something weird to say, and I'm going to, I'm going to go first and then you can make fun of me if nothing good happens. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I'm crispy chicken. And remember if you're in a relationship, then the only purpose you have is to study it. And if you're not, the only purpose you have is to study other people in relationships. Wow. You know, I, I want to make fun of you, but I didn't even follow what you what the words. <laughs> uh, I think that's a good enough way to make fun of me. All right, all right, it's done. Um, gosh, I wish I had something. I don't. Um, this is a great example, though, of in the uh, list and choose ethno method, the lister, the first lister, is at a disadvantage to the the chooser. There's definitely some power asymmetries. All right. <laughs> Good job. Thanks for listening, folks.